And if you would, keep your bulletin open to uh, those passages, particularly Psalm 43. That's where we're going to spend our time this morning. Um, Allow me to pray for us as we dive in. Father, again, thank you um, for the good news of the gospel that we've already heard and sung, prayed. Um, Thank you for the forgiveness of our sins. Thank you for new members. Um, Thank you for uh, joining folks together with us under your care as our great shepherd uh, so that you might uh, grow us in your grace and in the knowledge of of you and your Father and the Spirit, so that you might make us um, the people that you called us and created and redeemed us to be. And now as we look together at your word and and think some more about what it means to to pray and to be a praying people, um, would you come, Holy Spirit, help us to understand your word and help us to see Jesus. It's in his name we pray. Amen. Well, we're going to pick back up with our sermon series theme of becoming a praying church. And uh, I wanted to look at Psalm 43 this morning. Um, Before we get there, um, I don't know if you'll remember, but back in 2004, which was a long time ago now, wasn't it? Wow. Wow. Tylenol ran a commercial uh, television ad campaign with this tagline, pain is a waste of time. Anybody remember that? Well, now you know. It was a, it, there was a commercial that ran where Tylenol claimed that pain was a waste of time. It's amazing how advertisers uh, can tap into our culture and to our desires and wants. Um, the folks at Tylenol obviously know us well. We don't have time to hurt. Um, we believe that life is good when we feel good. Have you ever said, I don't have time to be sick. I don't have time to, to hurt. I've got things to do. Um, And you can't really blame them for trying to sell us what we want. And what we all want is, summed up in this phrase, the good life. Everybody wants the good life. Every commercial is selling that product. Every ad is making the same promise. In order to live the good life, you need to have this, get that, dress this way, smell that way, drive this truck, get insured by that duck, whatever. Thank you, Jim. You are now a good new member. I appreciate that. You are an example for all others. Laugh at the pastor's jokes. Um, But it's this never-ending story that advertisers tell us about what we need uh, to do and be in order to have the good life. So, so what is the good life? There, there's, a, there's an irreligious or non-religious version, definition. There's a religious version, and then there's a biblical version of the good life. Let me throw this out and see what you think. The irreligious good life definition is this. Life is good 
when I get what I want when I want it. So we define the good life by our own standards and we're determined to achieve it. We're, we're going to do it our way. Thank you very much. Life is good when I get what I want when I want it. But there's a religious version of that. And, and, and it goes like this. Life is good when God gives me what I want when I want it. And so since it's then dependent on God to give to me, then I've got to figure out a way to manipulate God, uh, even if it's, you know, by being good, I've got to manipulate God to give me what I want when I want it. Um, and so I turn God into a cosmic vending machine. If I just drop in the right coins of good works and I push God's buttons with some prayer and praise, then he'll drop down to me the very thing I'm looking for, that I need. What I want, when I want it. But the Bible defines the good life like this. Life is good when God gives me what he wants to give me when he wants to give it to me. That one's kind of tough. Life is good when God gives me what he wants to give me when he wants to give it. God defines the good life. God decides what is good to give us, when it's good to give it to us, and then asks us to trust his good heart. To trust that because he loves us, he will give us the truly good life. So now... How do pain and suffering fit into these definitions of the good life? Well, if, if we define the good life as getting what we want when we want it, even if it's with God's help, the first two definitions, then, of course, pain and suffering are a waste of our time because they're coming between us and the good life. So Tylenol would be right. Pain is a waste of time. But if God defines the good life, and if according to Jesus in John 17... Eternal life is knowing the Father and the one whom he sent, Jesus Christ. And if according to Romans 8, God works all things for the good of those who love him and are called according to his purpose. If those are true, in, in other words, if the good life means knowing God and knowing that all he does in my life is for my good, then no amount of pain or suffering can keep me as his child from having the good life he wants for me. So then pain is not a waste of time. In fact, pain just might be what God uses to get me the good life he wants me to have. Runs against the grain of not only our culture, but against the grain of our me-first hearts. So then the question is, what's all this got to do with prayer and Psalm 43? Well, Psalm 43 is the prayer of a man who honestly struggles with the fact that he's not getting the good life by the world's definition. And it's the record of, of his pleading with God in prayer to give him what God calls good. So Psalm 43 shows us how to pray through our pain. Let me kind of give you some context for Psalm 43. Many scholars believe that Psalm 43 is actually a continuation of Psalm 42. Um, they believe, if you look at it, Psalm 43 looks like it could be the third verse and chorus 
of Psalm 42. And um, whether it was actually originally attached to Psalm 42 doesn't matter. They go together. It's obvious if you read them together. So Psalm 42 kind of gives us some background to who this uh, person is. So let me explain a little bit about what's going on with, with the one who's praying this prayer. Psalm 42 is the prayer of a desperate man of God who is far away from the house of the Lord. The temple is in Jerusalem, way down south in Judah, but the the psalmist, the one writing this prayer, is stuck way up north near Mount Hermon, northeast of the Sea of Galilee. Let me do some Jim Suddeth, okay? Sea of Galilee, he's way up here, Jerusalem is down here. Okay, so he's way far away from the temple, from the house of God, where God's presence is. And he's trapped up there because of the oppression of his enemies. But he longs to be in the house of God. He, he longs to be there so that he can hear God's word and worship with God's people. His deepest desire is to be with God, near God, in the presence of God. But his circumstances seem to be getting in the way. There's an enemy that wants to keep him from getting back to God. So that's the context of Psalm 43. And in in this psalm, he prays through his pain, allowing his pain to drive him back to the one who matters most, the one who is his exceeding joy, his treasure, his everything. Because he knows that God is the good life. God is his exceeding joy. So I want us to, let's read through the psalm again because I want, I want you to see the pattern that's taking place here. Um, and the big picture pattern is that first he talks to God, then he talks to himself. First he prays to his Savior, then he preaches to his soul. Because in verse 1 it starts with, O oh God, and in verse 5 he says, O oh my soul. So, Look with me, you look on your bulletin or in your Bible, and I'm going to read through it again. He says, Vindicate me, O God, and defend my cause against an ungodly people. From the deceitful and unjust man, deliver me. For you are the God in whom I take refuge. Why have you rejected me? Why do I go about mourning because of the oppression of the enemy? Send out your light and your truth. Let them lead me. Let them bring me to your holy hill and to your dwelling. Then I will go to the altar of God, to God my exceeding joy. And I will praise you with the lyre, which was a stringed instrument. Oh God, my God. Then he talks to himself. Why are you cast down, oh my soul? And why are you in turmoil within me? Hope in God, for I shall again praise him, my salvation and my God. But what I'd like to do this morning is use this prayer as kind of a pattern for our praying, Um, particularly when we find ourselves in dire circumstances, when we find ourselves in in pain or or suffering of some sort. So the first four verses serve as a pattern for how we pray to our Savior in the midst of our pain, and then verse 5 is what we do after we've said this kind of prayer. Um, and, and there's a helpful little uh, acronym that will help you remember this prayer. And uh, even though he never mentioned Psalm 43 in this book, Larry Crabb wrote a book some years ago called The Papa 
prayer, P-A-P-A. And uh, it's fascinating to me, uh, great little book, fascinating to me how that prayer pattern that uh, Larry Crabb came up with, P-A-P-A, and we'll tell you what that is in a second, fits Psalm 43. Um, So I'm going to borrow that from him. Uh, as the outline for these first four verses. And if you want to write the, those four words down for Papa, uh, it's present, attend, purge, and approach. And now I will explain to you what all that means. Um, here's, here's the prayer pattern. First, present yourself to God without precept without pretense present your god to uh, present yourself to god without pretense um i love how paul miller in his book a praying life uh describes this he says the real you has to meet the real god we're often so busy and overwhelmed that when we slow down to pray we don't know where our hearts are we don't know what troubles us so oddly enough he says we might have to worry before we pray. Then our prayers will make sense. They will be about our real lives. Present yourself to God without pretense. So what was this psalmist troubled with? What was, what was on his heart? Where was his heart? First of all, in verse 1, he says, Vindicate me, defend my cause against an ungodly people. He felt attacked. Secondly, verse 1, he he said, you can hear the desperation in his voice. He says, from the deceitful and unjust man, deliver me, God. So he feels attacked and he feels desperate. Ever feel that way? Don't raise your hands, but anybody feeling attacked or desperate lately? Attacked either by actual people, as was his case, or as his often the case with us, attacked by our spiritual enemies. enemies. He feels attacked and desperate. Verse 2, he feels abandoned and depressed. Verse 2, he says, To God, why have you rejected me? He feels abandoned by God. And then he says, why do I, why do I go about mourning? He feels depressed. In Psalm 42, He said it this way, he said, my tears have been my food day and night. So in verse 1, he's attacked, he's desperate. Verse 2, he feels abandoned and depressed. He's presenting himself to God without any pretense. God, this is is who I am, this is where I am. So if you're feeling attacked or desperate or abandoned or depressed, then you're in a perfect position to pray. Paul Miller goes on to say this, Jesus does not say, come to me, all you who have learned how to concentrate in prayer, whose minds no longer wander, and I will give you rest. (laughs) No, Miller goes on to say, Jesus opens his arms to needy children and says, Come to me, all who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. The criteria, he says, for coming to Jesus is weariness. Come overwhelmed with life. Come with your wandering mind. Come messy. 
He goes on to say, what does it feel like to be weary? You have trouble concentrating. The problems of the day are like claws in your brain. You feel pummeled by life. He says, what, is it, what does heavy laden feel like? Same thing. You have so many problems, you don't even know where to start. You can't do life on your own anymore. Jesus wants you to come to him that way. Your weariness drives you to him. Paul Miller says, don't try to get the prayer right. Just tell God where you are and what's on your mind. That's what little children do. They come as they are, runny noses and all. So if you feel like, I don't know what to pray. I don't know how to pray. I don't know how to start. Start with that. Come to him as you are. Present yourself to God without pretense. It's, it's similar to when you, if you go to a new mall, uh, which, you know, we try to avoid malls these days, but if you go to a new mall and you don't know where anything is, what do you look for? The sign, the directory. And on the directory, what do you look for? The, the, what is some of the Apple store? No. You look for the red dot that says you are here. Because you want to know where you are before you figure out where you're trying to go. One of my favorite little comics, comics is a, a guy standing at a, one of those directories at a mall. And up here it's got an X and it says you are here. Down here, it's got another X, and it says, you should be here. <laughs> well, that's, that's the truth. And in prayer, start with your red dot. Start with where you are, and God will get you to where you need to be, and that's where we're going next. Um, so that's the P in Papa. Present yourself to God without pretense. The, the A, the first A is, now attend to how you're thinking of God. Attend to how you're thinking of God. Remember in verse 2, he said, For you are the God in whom I take refuge. That sounds pretty good. It's actually theologically accurate. God is the God in whom we can take refuge and should. But the second half of the verse says, Why have you rejected me? He, he knows, but he's struggling. Remember, the real you has to meet the real God. Now that you've been honest with God about how you see yourself, now be honest with yourself about how you see God. You come to the God, you come to God as the real you. Now let him show you the real him. Let him correct your understanding of his person and his purposes. This uh, psalm writer knows that God is a place of safety to whom he can run, a refuge in times of trouble, but God isn't living up to his expectations at that moment. If God is my refuge as he promised he would be, and yet at the same time my circumstances seem to suggest that he has abandoned me, then I have to change the way I think about God. And I have two choices. I can either believe God is a liar and is not my refuge, or... I can believe that he is a refuge in a way that I'm not expecting. That his idea of being my place of safety is different than mine. That he hasn't changed at all. He is my refuge, but my definition of refuge needs to change. I can either believe what I see, or I can believe what he says. 
So like this psalm writer, we, we must attend to how we're thinking of God. Um, Larry Crabb said it this way. He, he asked, how do you picture God when you pray? He says, whatever idea of God is in your mind when you talk with him will influence the way you pray. It's possible that millions of Christians, he says, across the world who think they're praying in Jesus' name are in fact praying in the name of someone else to a God that the Bible knows nothing of. Am I approaching you, God, as a cosmic vending machine? Because that's not what the Bible says you are. So our psalm writer, frustrated that the real God doesn't seem to be the God he thought he knew, asks for help to see him more clearly. He says in verse 3, Send out your light and your truth. Let them lead me. Let them bring me to your holy hill and to your dwelling. Like the man praying this prayer, you, you and I, we do have an enemy that wants to keep us from seeing and believing the good life that God is for us in Jesus. Paul says this in 2 Corinthians 4. Paul says, The God of this world has blinded the minds of the unbelievers to keep them from seeing the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. One of the enemy's greatest joys and missions is to blind us from seeing the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ. Paul goes on to say, For God who said, Let light shine out of darkness, has shown in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. We need to pray, God, send out your life and your your light and your truth. Let them lead me. So pray this way. God, my circumstances have me fogged in, Lord. I feel like I'm on Signal Mountain driving through the fog. It's dark and I'm losing sight of you. I'm lost in this fog of pain, Lord. Come get me. The world, my flesh, the devil, they're lying to me, Lord. They say that you've abandoned me, that you don't really love me. I'm lost in these lies, Lord. Come get me. Send out your light and truth like a rescue party to find me out here where I am and to bring me to where you are. So attend to how you view God and ask him to fix it. (laughs) And the next part of the prayer is the next P. Purge yourself of anything that blocks your relationship with God. We call this confession. So if we go back to the mall map uh, illustration where it says you are here but you should be here. Well, In this kind of praying, we've already found our red dot. We've admitted honestly what we see in in ourselves and what we've come and and how we have been seeing God incorrectly. But now, where are we we trying to get to? What's our destination? What's the store we're trying to find? Where are you headed? If I'm honest, I'd like to get to the pain relief store. Thank you very much. Thank you, Tylenol. Or to the fix my family store, or to the mend my marriage store, or to the heal my hurting body store, or to the get me a job store, or get me a better job store. Or or look, just drop me off at the ATM machine with your card, God, please. 
Help me to get to any store that will sell me the good life that says I can have what I want when I want it. That's typically how I approach my prayers. That's my destination. And then if I can't find one of those stores, God, then just point me to the food court and I'll stuff my face because that'll make me feel better, right? Comfort food. Or point me to the bookstore and I'll lust away the pain with a good romance novel, the swimsuit issue, or the latest fixer-upper magazine, or for some people, guns and ammo. You know, just, if you're not going to give me what I want when I want it, then just let me find a way to numb the pain. But, but notice, this man changes the focus of his prayer. In verses 1 and 2, it's all about me, my, me, I, and so on. But in verses 3 and 4, the focus is on God and getting to God and treasuring God. The store he's looking for now is the joy store. But not joy in a pain-free circumstance. No, look at, what the, look at what it says. To God, my exceeding joy. Um, John Piper preached a sermon on this psalm uh, right after he had been diagnosed with prostate cancer. And so cancer was heavy on his mind and heart. And, and I want to read you some of what he had to say about this phrase, to God my exceeding joy. It's, it's very helpful. He says, notice that there's not a whiff here of praying for vindication over the enemy. That's not in view anymore. Something far greater is at stake now. There's a much more important victory to be won than victory over people or disaster or cancer. There's, victor there's a victory far more important, and you can win it even if you die. That's what the psalmist is fighting for now, Piper says. He goes on to say, and this quote is in your bulletin, the final goal of life is God himself experienced as your exceeding joy, or very literally from the Hebrew, God, the gladness of my rejoicing. That's what exceeding joy means, the gladness of my rejoicing. That is, God, who in all my rejoicing over all the good things that he has made, is himself in all my rejoicing, the heart of my joy, the gladness of my joy. Piper says, isn't this amazing? Here's a man threatened by enemies and feeling danger from his adversaries, and yet he knows that the ultimate battle of his life is not the defeat of his enemies. It is not escaping natural catastrophe. It is not being healed from cancer. The ultimate battle is, will God be his exceeding joy? Will God be the gladness at the heart of all his joys? Whew, that's convicting. Because that's not what I usually think the ultimate battle is about. And so, in order to get to the joy store, that, to get to God is your exceeding joy, where the presence of God is, the psalmist goes on, you have to go through the altar of God. Notice the path in, in these verses. He says, lead me to your holy hill. He's talking about the temple mount. That's where the temple sits. And then he says, to your dwelling. That's the temple itself. That's where the presence of God dwelt. And then he says, to the altar. 
He's getting more, he's narrowing down more and more specific. The temple mount, the temple, the altar. That's where the sacrifice is offered for sin. And then he says, to God, my exceeding joy. The Holy of Holies was that special room inside the temple where God's presence dwelt over the mercy seat where the priest only could go in once per year to offer the blood sacrifice for the atonement of sins. So this psalmist is saying, I want to get to where I am in the presence of God in the Holy of Holies. I want God as my exceeding joy. But in order to get there, you have to go through the sacrifice. You have to go through the altar. Before you can know God as your joy, you have to know He is your judge. Our sin must be paid for. It must be purged. It must be removed from between us and God so that we can experience them then as our exceeding joy. So we have to ask God to purge whatever is blocking our relationship with Him. On this side of the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus, the altar is the cross of Christ. It's at the cross that I can see clearly what's keeping me from the Father, and it's there that I can see clearly what the Father has done to make it possible for me to experience Him as my exceeding joy. He has put my sin on His Son so that I could be a beloved Son in whom He is well pleased. The cross is the corrective lens that clears my vision so that I can see God for who He really is. The cross shows me that God is holy. He has to punish sin. His wrath against my sin is real and full of fury, and He poured out that wrath on Jesus instead of me. But the cross also shows me that God is love. Yes, His wrath is real and full of fury, but He poured it out on Jesus for me because he loves me it's at the cross that i learned that christ has already defeated my greatest enemies sin death and satan they may attack and accuse but i've already been vindicated in christ i've already been delivered from my greatest desperation my desperate need to be delivered from the wrath of god that i deserve at the cross i see that god has not abandoned me but has adopted me as his own son So here at the altar, at the cross, I repent of all the shopping for the good life that I've done at all those other stores. I cling to the cross and I believe the good news again that the greatest roadblock to the true good life has been removed. I have been reconciled to God the Father through Jesus the Son by the power of His Spirit. So you see how that pattern of prayer takes me. Present God, present yourself to God as you are, without pretense. Then attend to how you've been seeing God and ask Him to show you clearly who He is. And by doing that, He will lead you to the cross where He will show you that He is holy and He is love and that He is your exceeding joy. And then, the final A, approach God as the first thing in your life. Approach God as the exceeding joy that he is. By faith, say, God, you, you are my exceeding joy. You are my everything. No matter what the circumstances are. I remember 
uh, about 10 years ago now, uh, we were in the midst of uh, attempting to plant a church. And uh, it was becoming clear, clearer that it might not make it financially. And around that time, I happened to have the opportunity to go on a little 24-hour retreat um, in the mountains by myself. And I was out one night walking around praying, and I was just anxious over this church plant. And I was thinking about Moses and when he led the people out through the Red Sea and into the desert and how they were, said to him, what, did you bring us out here to die? And I was afraid that if this plant didn't make it, the people that I asked to come with me to plant the church were going to say, what would you do, bring us out here to bail? And as I was praying about that and expressing my angst to God, um, I looked up and I saw the Big Dipper constellation in the sky. God doesn't talk to me audibly, okay? I'll just, it's okay. But I, it was as if he was saying to me, and I remembered scriptures coming to my head, but I looked up at this big dipper, which is like a big scoop, you know, to, to drink from. And I looked up, and it was as if he said to me, am I enough for you, thirsty one? If this fails, am I going to be enough for you? Am I going to be satisfying to you? And I looked at that dipper and it was like he was saying, you know, if I wanted to, I could fill that thing with water. Would that be enough for you? But what if I don't? Am I going to be enough for you? Am I going to be enough to satisfy the thirst of your heart, even if this church plant fails? That's what I think it means to approach God as the first thing. A second thing would have been great. The church makes it and grows and thrives and people come to know Jesus and grow as disciples. There's nothing wrong with praying that that would happen. But that's not a guarantee. What a guarantee is, is that he can be my exceeding joy even when everything else is a desert. The rest of the story is, yes, it did fail. And he's enough. In what dry place are you crying out to God right now with a thirsty heart? He wants to know, am I enough for you, thirsty one? Am I your exceeding joy? Am I your good life? He wants you to know that your pain is not a waste of time because neither death nor life nor anything in all of creation can separate you from the love of God in Christ Jesus for you. So having prayed that way to your Savior, finally, and this is quick and we're done, then after having gone through all that, he preaches to his soul in verse 5. 
He says, why are you cast down, O my soul? Why are you in turmoil within me? He, he assesses his heart honestly before God. Why are you cast down, soul? Why are you in turmoil? Uh, a preacher in England from back in the 1950s, uh, Martin Lloyd-Jones, uh, wrote a book called Spiritual Depression in which he said, based on Psalm 42 and 43, he said, quit listening to yourself and start talking to yourself. Preach to your soul and say, and this is in light of God being your exceeding joy because of what he's done on the cross. Why are you downcast? Why are you in turmoil? And then he advises his heart to hope in God. Hope in God, for I shall again praise him, my salvation and my God. Some final thoughts from Paul Miller. He says, if God is sovereign, then he's in control of all the details of my life. If he's loving, then he's going to be shaping the details of my life for my good. If he's all wise, then he's not going to do everything I want because I don't know what I need. If he's patient, then he's going to take time to do all this. When we put all these together, God's sovereignty, love, wisdom, and patience, we have a divine story. People often talk about prayer as if it is disconnected from what God is doing in their lives. But we are actors in his drama, listening for our lines, quieting our hearts so we can hear the voice of the playwright. He says, you can't have a good story without tension and conflict, without things going wrong. Unanswered prayers create some of the tensions in the story God is weaving in our lives. When we realize this, we want to know what God is doing. What pattern is God weaving? If God is composing a story with our lives, he says, then our lives are no longer static. We aren't paralyzed by life. We can hope. He says, instead of hunting for the perfect spiritual state to lift you above the chaos, pray in the chaos. When you stop trying to control your life and instead allow your anxieties and problems to bring you to God in prayer, you shift from worry to watching. You watch God weave his patterns in the story of your life. Instead of trying to be out front designing your life, you realize you're inside God's drama. And as you wait, you begin to see him work and your life begins to sparkle with wonder. You are learning to trust again, he says. Friends, whatever it is that defines your pain, whatever it is that is an attack and makes you feel desperate, whatever it is that makes you wonder if you've been abandoned by God and depresses you, present it to God. And then attend to God. Say, God, I know I'm not seeing you right. I'm sure I'm not seeing you right. Send out your light and truth. Lead me to the cross. Lead me back to Jesus. Show me who you are through the lens of Christ crucified. And folks, that's, what, that's why this church loves this table. It's why we 
celebrate this so often. This table is a picture of the gospel, and it's the corrective lenses we need so that we can see God clearly even when we don't understand what we see down here. Um, So let me pray for us, and we'll come to the table together. Oh, Father, thank you. Thank you for the gift of Psalm 43. Thank you for the gift of, of putting things into words and, and even kind of laying out a, a pattern for us, for me, slow people who just, we don't know how to pray as we ought, your word says. But you provided prayers for us to help us. So thank you for that. Thank you for this table, um, for the reminder of the body and blood of Jesus that was broken and poured out because you love us and because you want us to be, you, you want to be for us our exceeding joy. You want to be for us our good life. And so we confess to you, that we have been shopping at all the wrong stores. And we ask that you would help us to come back, lead us to the altar again this morning so that we can get back to you. We ask this in Jesus' name.